Hello, and welcome to Spotlight On, where we put the spotlight on change makers and experts in the field of safeguarding. Throughout this series, we'll have conversations with those who can offer insights that can help us all to better understand safeguarding and improve our practices. This podcast is produced by the Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe. Our hub provides practical and accessible safeguarding resources that aim to reduce harm to refugees and displaced people. I'm your host, Sarah Martin. I am the Capacity Building Advisor for the Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe, and thank you for listening to today's episode, Guiding the Way, the Role of Leaders in Supporting Safeguarding in Eastern Europe. In this episode, we'll be putting the spotlight on Claire Condillac, a human resources specialist who developed our bite-sized leadership guidance. We'll be discussing the role of leaders in promoting a culture of safeguarding, the challenges that they may face, and how you can implement safeguarding into your organization, all of it while looking from an Eastern European lens. So let's get started. Hi, Claire. How are you doing today? Hey, Sarah. Great to talk to you. I'm good, thanks. How about you? Not bad, not bad. So, Claire, we've known each other for a while, and while I've always been impressed with your work on human resources, maybe I'd like to hear a little bit more about your actual background working with leaders in the humanitarian and development sector. Yeah, sure. Um, So firstly, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to to be with you today. And yeah, that, that sounds like a great place to start. So I've been working in HR and organizational development for more than 20 years. And my background was originally in the private sector in the UK. But in 2005, I shifted to the international development and humanitarian sector. And my first role in the sector was as an HSP HR advisor for Oxfam's surge team. And as part of my role, I was working directly with humanitarian leaders on the ground in really diverse humanitarian contexts, mostly in those kind of complex and large emergencies to support leaders with things like uh, the initial scale up with restructuring from the initial emergency phase into recovery and then phasing out um, at, at the end of the emergency. And after that experience with Oxfam, I shifted and worked on the ground with the British Red Cross as an HR delegate in Indonesia, and then spent more than five years as the regional HR and OD partner in Asia for Plan International. And there I was responsible for working uh, with the regional director, with our 14 country directors, and as a child-centred organisation, did a tremendous amount of work on child protection and really making sure that Plan International systems on, on the ground in Asia um, and it's in particular its HR systems were were fit for purpose and making sure that we we were protecting the the children that we we work with and for the last six or seven years I've been working as a consultant so I founded an organization called Bongo HR and we work directly with leaders in a really diverse range of organizations who are really seeking to to make change. And I think it's important 
to emphasize we we don't just work in kind of those traditional HR areas that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with like recruitment or performance management or learning and development but we really focus on the organizational development side and that's really about organizational effectiveness and helping leaders to use um, those levers which can positively impact their their organizational performance. And that could be culture, it could be leadership and management, it could be governance, it could be systems. And of course, in our sector, safeguarding really kind of fits within that organizational effectiveness um, domain. So that's that's where a lot of our work has been focused in, in the last six or seven years. Thank you so much, Claire. And I think that's why um, we wanted to bring you on board with um, the Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe, because some of the issues that we know um, around safeguarding go beyond just uh, developing uh, questionnaires or reporting mechanisms, but really reach into the culture uh, of the organization and how organizational change can take place. So maybe you could uh, tell our listeners, why do you think leaders and managers in organizations, particularly responding to the, the Ukraine refugee crisis, need to think about safeguarding? Yeah, great, great question. Thanks, Sarah. Well, in the context of the Ukraine, of course, we're, we're talking about a large number of people who've, who've been impacted. We're talking about a large number of, of refugees. And reflecting that we've obviously got a large number of organizations operating in eastern european to to provide that that support and there's been a tremendous influx of aid workers of volunteers of many kind of grassroots and small organizations who who are really kind of stepping up um, to provide assistance. But of course, in that type of context, there's a lot of risks. And within the context of the crisis in the U- Ukraine, we've got groups who are particularly vulnerable. So, you know, women, children, and um, people from dis- different ethnic minority groups, people who identify as LGBTQI plus and it's really important in that context to think about you know what what are the risks that are particular to your organization and I really believe strongly that leaders and managers are best placed to do that We're not just talking about something that's a donor compliance requirement, but we're talking about something that's really, really fundamental, that commitment to do no harm, that level of of kind of confidence that as a leader you're putting in place the measures that are going to protect your organisation, that are going to kind of ultimately protect your, your staff. And are going to protect um, those those people who who are on um, on the ground and and vulnerable and at risk, and I think it's it's really difficult to underestimate the 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 kind of the importance of the role that leaders and managers play, particularly in those those small organisations. You know, often 
there, there may not be the dedicated HR support or there may not be uh, dedicated specialists. So it's really up to leaders and managers to drive safeguarding and to really make sure that, that it becomes an organisational priority. And frankly, you know, if, if leaders and managers don't make it a priority, then it, it's unlikely that, um, that you know, it, will, it will happen. And that can have, have really devastating consequences for, for the people who were involved. So yeah, I, I think the role of leaders and managers is absolutely fundamental. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Having worked in organizations where it was obvious that the managers really didn't support this and trying to implement change in it. And without the buy-in from the leadership, it's very, very difficult. So what do you think are some of the key challenges that leaders of small civil society organizations can face in addressing safeguarding? Okay, so yeah, I think small civil society organizations do face a number of challenges and it's really important to be realistic and pragmatic i mean firstly obviously there's a huge number of competing priorities that can be really significant workloads and people who've been working now to support refugees from the Ukraine crisis have now been working for a considerable amount of time. So leaders and managers are facing issues with their staff, like stress, like burnout and exhaustion. And, you know, really, how do you find that sense of urgency to prioritise this, particularly I think for leaders and managers who may feel like, you know, they know their staff and personnel very well and therefore, you know, perhaps have a sense that this might be an issue for other organisations, but it's not an issue for, for me or for us because I know, you know, I know my people. And there can be some risks associated with that kind of attitude. And I think a, a kind of final barrier to mention is for smaller organisations, it can be quite challenging to access the, the expertise that you might feel that you need in order to, to put some of these pieces in place. So, you know, we recognise that smaller organisations often don't have a dedicated HR specialist or, you know, may feel like they need external expertise to support them to develop some of the safeguarding infrastructure, but perhaps feel like they don't have the funding in order to, to bring that in. So I, I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are many challenges, but I don't think that detracts from the importance of this. And, you know, I'm sure as our conversation continues, we'll, we'll be able to articulate what leaders and managers can do, notwithstanding the, is the reality that many of them are operating in. Yeah, definitely true. You were the author of our bite-sized pieces on leadership and uh, what leaders can do in Eastern Europe, as well as a training that we've developed. So I'm sure you have a few tips for leaders who might be faced with thinking about safeguarding for the first time, or those who are actually working in a small organization without a lot of human resources support. What do you think that leaders should do to make sure the staff in their organization are thinking about safeguarding? I think that 
It can feel overwhelming for leaders and managers. And I think it's really important. The number one tip would be, you know, start somewhere. And as we've said, you know, one size doesn't fit all. So I think it's really important for leaders and managers to spend that time reflecting and to give this a little bit of headspace in order to be really precise about the the actions that can be taken that will have most impact within the context of of their own organisation. And I think there's, there's a few things that you can do as a leader that don't necessarily take resources or time, but just take a little bit of intentionality on the part of the leader. So I think there's a number of of tips in terms of how you can behave as a leader. Some examples around that are just spending that little bit of time to think things through and really make sure that within the context of your organisation, you have identified what what the biggest safeguarding risks are and you you really have have spent time to internalise and understand that. I think another tip with behaviour is as a leader and manager, you know, you're not necessarily expected to have all the answers all of the time. But by listening and demonstrating some humility, you can really open yourself up to thinking about things in in a new way and to make sure that you're creating the type of environment where people feel safe to to discuss and raise any any concerns that you might have that they might have Um, and I think a final kind of tip from the behavioral aspect is to really make sure that as the leader or manager you yourself are prioritizing and that you're a visible advocate of good safeguarding practices you know can you make sure this appears in your your organizational team meetings can you make sure that you know you're you're really advocating for for safeguarding in in your conversations with with the people that you're you're working with so I think that they're just a number of tips which, you know, it's, they're important because they're things that don't have direct cost implications and therefore they're open to, you know, leaders of, of all organisational sizes and all, all types of resourcing levels. And I think just a final kind of reflection on the, the priorities is that, it's really important to think about the infrastructure that you've got in place. And again, to emphasize that one size doesn't fit all, but you can really step back and look at your whole kind of infrastructure and be quite precise around what are the most important pieces that you need to have in place in order to ensure that there's a strong safeguarding environment. My personal tip with that would always be a code of conduct. And there's many resources available to support organisations with that. So um, RSH has developed a number of of resources. These are signposted in the, the tip sheets 
that we've given. There's a much longer guide that's been developed by the CHS Alliance around this. So there are a number of really useful tools that you can use just to kind of make sure that that infrastructure is, is in place and working well. Thanks a lot, Claire. And you've been really uh, very essential to us in helping to pull these together. So um, thank you again for that. So my final question for you um, is about the idea of a survivor-centered approach. We talk about survivor-centered approach, meaning that the victim or the survivor of the safeguarding incident should be um, allowed to make choices that benefit him or her to uh, start the healing and to feel that they're back in control again. So do you have any thoughts you'd like to share about embedding a survivor-centered approach and basically a safeguarding culture into organizations? Yeah, I, I have a number of thoughts on that. And I think survivor-centered approach is one of those phrases that is, is perhaps a little bit at risk of being a kind of sector piece of jargon or terminology that you know can can be perhaps slightly um, difficult for people to to grasp and essentially for me when we're talking about a survivor-centered approach it's really just making sure that the people who are in, in the center of the, you know, the allegations or the concerns are treated fundamentally with dignity and respect The you know, every, every human being has, has the right to deserve. So you can kind of boil that survivor centered approach right down to, to, you know, those, those really basic kind of human rights and about treating those people with um with with that kind of that that lens and I think that that's just really really helpful and making sure then that they're at the heart of all of the decisions that you're making um as you as you move through so a survivor centered approach isn't just about how you respond to allegations but it's really making sure that you know it's one of the reasons why you need the safeguarding infrastructure in in the first place is because you're really trying to kind of prioritize the well-being and welfare of of the communities the people the refugees that that you're supporting and perhaps i can talk about that just in in slightly more practical terms as well I think if an allegation arises, then the very, very first step should be making sure that the people who are at the centre of that are offered the support that they need. And that can vary dependent on the situation. So that could look like medical assistance. It could look like accessing psychosocial support, for example. But just really making sure that people have the access to to that support, not just as a one off, but actually for for as long as as that's needed. I think another really important tip is that as an investigations process is moving through, it's just that basic courtesy and check that you're keeping the survivor updated 
as you move through the process, but that also when you're reaching key decision points that the survivor is consulted. So again, you know, it, it's kind of common sense and, and decent human behaviour, but I think it's it's really, really important. Fundamental to that and the decision points, and it's something it's just so important to emphasise, is really making sure that there's, there's consultation with survivors before there's a referral to any kind of external authorities, or that could be police in certain circumstances if a, if a criminal activity is suspected or, or social services and that's just because there are different risks associated with that in, in different contexts and it's really important to consider the wishes of the survivor but also you know maintaining confidentiality to also seek inputs from, from other experts on the ground which can really help so there, there are a few kind of practical hints and tips for, for that survivor-centred approach, which is, is just so important. Uh, thank you so much for that, Claire. Yes, in the humanitarian sector, we do tend to slide into jargon, but in this case, like uh, we really want to emphasize this survivor-centred approach for all of the reasons that you mentioned there. So thank you again, Claire. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you. And thanks again for all your hard work putting together these resources for the civil society organizations working in Eastern Europe responding to the Ukrainian refugee response. So I'll end there and thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for the opportunity. Sarah Martin and you've been listening to Spotlight On, produced with the support of the Safeguarding Hub Eastern Europe. We had technical help today from Aniko Vass and Mariam abdul Akar. Thanks to all of you for listening and thank you to Claire Condillac for joining me today on this episode of Spotlight On. I hope you enjoyed learning about leadership and safeguarding. If you want to learn more, please visit our website easterneurope.safeguardingsupporthub.org and download our documents. If you have any comments on this episode or want to share your thoughts for the focus of future episodes, contact us via social media on Facebook, LinkedIn, or email us at easterneurope at safeguardingsupporthub.org. Thanks again for joining, and we'll see you on our next episode.